Well, good evening to all of you. Welcome to Praxis. It's a joy to be able to gather as a fellowship group and open God's Word that while we, in, while we do enjoy the company of one another, what stirs our affections the most is the common bond we have in Christ and how we can deepen that bond as we plunge into Scripture to know our Savior more and the worth of his sacrifice on the cross and the depth of the gospel. And so we as a fellowship group have been studying Romans for probably about a year now. And uh, tonight we're going to be in Romans 8, a really uh, rich passage, Romans 8, verses 31 to 39. And so I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. I'll go ahead and read our passage for us, and then we will pray, asking for the Lord's blessing. Romans 8, beginning in verse 31. This is the Word of God. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, as finite people, we are also quite fickle at times. Our faith wavers and we succumb to temptation. We allow doubt to plague our minds. And it is easy to be disheartened, discouraged if our salvation rested in our own abilities, our own hands. And that's why this passage is a balm to our aching souls, to be comforted and to know that you are faithful to your people. Lord, that nothing can separate us from your love. There is no charge that would cause you to then reject us or banish us, and that you are for us. And so, Lord, we pray for soft hearts, that we would be malleable before your perfect word, that it might bolster us and make us more and more like Christ, confident and joyful in him. Use this passage, use this time together in a way that would nourish our souls and be profitable in our obedience to you. We pray for your help. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you, if you've been with us since the beginning of this year, we resumed our study of Romans and we kicked off chapter 8. 
we covered what many consider to be the greatest chapter in the Bible. And I know that sounds like an exaggeration, but such a claim is actually not without merit because the Apostle Paul has traversed magnificent heights. I mean, even from the start, his opening salvo, no condemnation, is finally bookend with no separation in verse 29. And everything packed in between develops and reinforces these truths. In the first section of chapter eight, to jog our memory, Paul revels in how we have been liberated from sin and death, that indwelt by the spirit, we are made alive to God. We're a new creation. And from verses 12 to 17, the apostle then teases out some of the ramifications of this. Led by the spirit, we put our flesh to death in accordance with our new identity, children of God, co-heirs with Christ. And it gets even better because Paul then unpacks the content of such a glorious inheritance and we are waiting for it with patience. Sure, we experience some of the blessings and joys of salvation, but not all of it. And so we groan. Now the groan of creation, the groan of the church, the groan of the Holy Spirit cries for the culmination of our redemption. When God will finalize it all and make all things new, we are destined for glory. And yet at the same time, we know we haven't arrived yet. We live in a fallen, broken world. We still suffer, we still sin, but we do not lose heart. We are confident in God's promises that he is orchestrating and bending all of human history, past, present, and future for our ultimate good to be conformed to the image of his son. And one day, one day that will be finally and fully realized. Last time, Paul ends on a marvelous Vista, this grand view that from one end of eternity to the other, this unbreakable chain of salvation. Verse 30, just glance at it. And those whom he predestined, so from the very beginning, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, Paul will do a deep dive into the doctrine of election in chapters 9 to 11. But before he stretches our cerebral capacities, he doesn't want the moment to slip away. He has a stew in these sublime ramifications of all that he's unraveled until we're unraveled, until we are undone in wonder and awe, our souls soaring with joy, praise, and peace. Because here's my observation, here's my opinion. In my 15 years of ministry, the constant battle for Christians and myself alike is to remember, to anchor ourselves in these glorious truths so that it's not only acknowledged and known mentally, but felt and lived viscerally. I mean, just look at the section headings for this chapter. If you're using the ESV, we have labels like life in the spirit, heirs with Christ, future glory. And yet these incredible titles, they can just kind of 
we can just kind of gloss over them. They can bounce right off of us, leaving us unfazed. We forget this chapter is intended to foster assurance, to strengthen our backbones. And if God has gifted his spirit, if he sovereignly holds all things in his hands, if he holds us, then despite what our eyes can see, despite what we experience in this life, we can be assured that we will endure. You see, the doctrine of perseverance is undergirded by the doctrine of preservation. God's promise to complete the good work, he begins in each one of us. And yet again, in my 15 years of ministry, we're so easily discouraged. We're discouraged by our afflictions, by our backsliding, difficulties in relationships, discontentment in life, and doubt seeps in. Sometimes it's a whisper, but sometimes in the valley, the voice thunders really loud. Why is my life like this? How can I still be so enslaved, so hampered by my flesh, so weighed down by this particular vice? How can I be sure that I am saved, that I will make it? And to address this harrowing question once and for all, Paul throws down the gauntlet. He answers the greatest external and internal criticism we might encounter, our biggest concerns when it comes to faith, the scariest scenarios we wrestle with. You know, when our future is murky or we're in a season of immense sorrow, we're prone to wonder, is God against me? When we cave into temptation, or lose our patience, when we relapse into old habits, we're prone to wonder, will I be condemned anew by God? Or maybe just by where we're at in life, how things are going, much to our disappointment, or by our own lack of fervor for the Lord, we wonder if that's how he feels towards us. Cold, distant, and the question creeps up on us. Am I loved by God? Does he care for me? Well, in our passage tonight, Paul wields the momentum of everything he has taught in chapter eight to smash these uncertainties, to bolster our shaky faith with unshakable confidence in God. Paul settles the debate and frames his closing argument by answering three dominant fears we might have. The apostle presents these hypotheticals in the form of rhetorical questions for rhetorical effect. And these questions can be categorized into three main concerns, three major fears which will guide us and be our outline for tonight. Listen to what Paul has to say to our fear that God might somehow, someway be against us. So our first point, answering God is against us. Look again at verse 31. Paul writes, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against this? And so the apostle has us turn around and survey the land. Certainly everything in chapter eight, but specifically the golden chain of our salvation in verses 28 to 30. What shall we say to these things that all things that God is working for are good? Is there anything that would cause us to be unsure of God's sure word and work? Is there any reason to doubt God being on our side? 
And notice, Paul is not really questioning. He's not really wondering whether people can be against us. We know from common sense and experience, from daily life, this is a frequent occurrence. Satan and his minions are against us. This world is against us. Social agenda, identity politics, college professors, business executives, basketball coaches, neighbors, sometimes our own non-Christian friends and families, they all oppose us. The apostle is not denying that reality. What he is denying is their success. Though they may resist, reject, fight, hate, even kill us, their attempts to foil our faith will be foiled not because we're smart or we can outwit them, not because we have such great resolve or discipline, but because in the end, God does not abandon his own. Because in the end, God is for us. And should we doubt, should we need evidence, we look no further than the definitive proof of God's commitment. Verse 32. He, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul leads with the word spare. Spare. Because when it comes to a relationship between a father and a son, it's expected. It's natural. A good father intuitively, instinctually spares his son of any serious pain, hardship, or harm. I know um, I often make my son, Everett, the butt of my jokes or sermon illustrations, but that's because I love him, okay? He's hilarious and all the stress and craziness just comes with the territory of trying to handle his wild personality. But don't be confused. As much as I may like and even love you, Praxis, if I had to choose between your well-being, your happiness, your tears, or my son's, well, all I have for you is a box of tissues. You see, hanging from a cliff, you don't even have to guess who I'd save between you and him. No offense. But I would be offended if you asked me. It's nonsensical as a father. Obviously, I would spare my own precious son. Which is why the rest of this verse is staggering, mind-boggling. It is nonsensical to us. We can't fathom those two words that precede spare. He did not. He would not spare his own son. But in the greatest plot twist ever, the father gave him up for us all. If you know your Bibles, the scripture speaks of how Pilate delivered Jesus over. The scriptures also speak of how Herod, the Jewish and Gentile people, delivered Jesus over. The scriptures even speak of how Jesus delivered himself over. But Paul is tracing it all back to the source, that ultimately God delivered up his own son to death, which begs the question, why? To demonstrate that in Christ, in the offer of his son, the God who was once against you is actually for you. And this language of spare and giving up is a throwback to the Old Testament, 
to a particular account, I'm sure the similarities have crossed your mind. Your mind gravitates towards Abraham and Isaac, Genesis 22. You know the story. After years of waiting and longing, Abraham and Sarah finally have their promised son. And God comes along one day to test Abraham's devotion by issuing a solemn command. Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and sacrifice him. And what Abraham does is admirable, a paragon of obedience. Abraham takes Isaac and they ascend up Mount Moriah as father and son. The wood is laid, then Isaac. But as Abraham is about to drive that knife through his precious son, the angel of the Lord intrudes and prevents him from for Isaac from being slain. And Abraham passes the test with flying colors. And we read that story and we marvel. We marvel at this man's commitment, but it still pales in comparison to God. What was theoretical for Abraham was true for God. Abraham did not spare, but he didn't give up his son. God did not spare. He gave up his son. No man's commitment, resolve, can match God's. And in Christ, he is for you on a level no person has ever demonstrated or thought of. He has given up his only begotten son so we might become sons of God. And if he's proven his commitment, by providing his best, is there anything he would hold back for your good? I mean, it's logic, right? This is the basic greater to lesser argument. The classic from the bigger ask to the smaller one. You know, you might have that friend who's super stingy, or you might be this friend, always splitting the bill down to the scent, to that precise scent. And so they tell you, well, it's an odd amount. So today you will pay that penny. And next time I will pay the penny. I mean, such a cheap person is not going to be someone willing to lend you a hundred bucks. Or if they do, it's going to be a headache. You're not even going to bother asking. But on the other end of the spectrum, let's just say it's me. And in my generosity, I buy you a house. And since this is hypothetical, let's say it's fully furnished mansion in the Pacific Palisades. Now, would you be concerned that I'm going to cheat you when it comes to splitting the check? Would you hesitate to ask for a couple bucks? In fact, how baffling would it be if you wondered whether you could enjoy the amenities of your new home, whether you could sit on the comfy couch or catch a movie on the big screen? You don't have to bother. It's a package deal. The house was given so that you can enjoy it and all the smaller gifts included inside. So the sun, the sun is given so you could have life and life abundantly, eternal life, to know God and the one he has sent, and to enjoy everything else the Father provides. 
He will not cheat you, Praxis. He is not miserly. No good thing does he withhold. God, God is the most thorough quality assurance engineer. All the engineers are perking up. But everything in and held back from your life has been investigated, scrutinized, and stamped with his seal of approval. It is for your benefit. Maybe not immediately, maybe not from the world's perspective, but in accordance to the Son. What is necessary to conform you to his image, just as God vowed in verse 29. Praxis, as we have been hearing on Sundays, we need to put this lens on to navigate wisely and faithfully through life. Are you panicking about your job situation? Maybe imposter syndrome. Are you worried about the economy, the housing market, world war, strife, COVID, invisible viruses? Are you afraid of mockery from coworkers, the disappointment of parents, or just plain being lonely for the rest of your life? In all these things, you don't journey apart from the Lord. Christian, who can be against you when he is for you? Paul transitions next from opposition to accusation. The second fear the apostle deals with is answering, God accuses us. God accuses us. Verse 33 Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Throughout the Bible, Satan is depicted as a sly adversary. He's portrayed as a lion on the prowl, ready to attack. What's his takedown move? He'll employ any strategy to distance us from Jesus. He will shame us to the point of embarrassment where we don't want to go to him, listing all of our inconsistencies, our failures, our vices. But the accusations don't just fly from the outside. It can also be an inside job, right? I think we all know this to some degree. That if we listen to the accusations long enough, it's not surprising if you start regurgitating and believing them yourself. We buy into the devil's claims, adopting his tactic as our own. Why? Because I think inside of us, we think the measure of who we are is in what we do. It lines up, after all, with our grading system, with our annual reviews. Latent throughout our lives, we're conned into thinking you can be anything you set your mind to, that you're only as good as your accomplishments. And sure, this system works great, works wonders when everything is great and wonderful. Promotions and popularity, they affirm our worth. But what happens when we can't keep up, when we bomb the interview or go through a breakup, well, then we spiral. And the tragedy is we import this same approach, the same mentality and metric to our spiritual relationship. 
that raised in a workspace environment, we believe then God's favor or displeasure with us is contingent upon our performance. He brings us in for an annual review. And maybe this is all fine and dandy when we're on top of things, on top of our Bible reading, serving faithfully, controlling our sins. But what happens when we fail? Well, the walls come crashing down. And you know this. A vicious tongue and a short fuse soon expose the anger hidden within. A jealousy, bitterness, and the proclivity to complain or gossip. Who doesn't feel these urges bubbling just beneath the surface? We see how selfish we are with our time, how ungrateful we are towards our parents, how we cave and compromise under peer pressure. Even pride is baked into our earnest attempts at obeying God. And it all avalanches on us. We're left buried asking, man, I thought I was a Christian. What is wrong with me? Am I legit? How can I be a genuine believer when I return over and over again to the same vices? Should you be questioning yourself like that? Let me ask, let me propose a question that in those thoughts, what are you concentrating on? What is of first importance? Where are you putting the focus? I think truth be told, on you, on your performance, on your works, on your sin, not, definitely not on your Savior. Is it right to be contrite over our transgressions? Absolutely. Of course. But only if you don't stay there. The devil and our arrogant hearts know nothing of grace, of a God who justifies because we don't look outside of ourselves. But the humble are ready for an advocate. And so long as we try to justify our standing before God based on me and my obedience, we are erasing God from the picture and playing right into the devil's scheme, strengthening the legitimacy of his accusation. We are subscribing to the same system as Satan himself. And that is probably not a good sign. Because really, what can we say? The devil is spot on. He's accurate in his assessment. We're not disputing whether we're sinners or not. Guilty as charged, we're unworthy. The pivotal point is, where do we go from there? In our omission, do we wallow under a mountain of guilt and despair? Or in our conviction, do we cry out for another? Look out, looking outside of ourselves to someone who can justify the unrighteous. That's why there's a key word in verse 33. Do you see it? Elect. Elect. Our assurance is not in our doing, but in his choosing. Practice here, 1 John 3 Verses 20 to 21. For whenever our hearts condemn us or anyone else tries to condemn us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, he knows everything anyway. And so your security rests not in what you do, but what he has done. His election, as Paul will expound in the next chapters, but for now, suffice to say, those who are chosen 
are not condemned or charged. These two verses are also filled with legal terms. I think you can pick up on that. Charge, justifies, condemn. We are transported to the heavenly courtroom where the argument has been presented and a final verdict is about to be read. And to our surprise, God announces justify. God justifies. How? Christ Jesus is the one who has died. He takes our place. He bears our punishment. R.C. Sproul wrote, the glory of the gospel is this. The one from whom we need to be saved is the one who has saved us. And the gavel comes down. It's settled. And no one dare attempt to overturn the decree of a divine judge. Who can bring any charge? Who can condemn? To do so is to commit double jeopardy in the courtroom of God. Look, if there's anything that's doubled, it's actually what's secured by Christ. His death has satisfied the justice of God and paid for our sins. It is a past reality, but there is more. To shore up our wavering, weak hearts, we have confidence because Jesus doesn't remain dead in the grave. He resurrects and petitions for us. We've read of the Spirit groaning on our behalf. We now read of the Son interceding on our behalf. And that is a present and future reality. So we live, breathe, and work not to establish our righteousness, but because we are righteous. Not to work for our salvation, but we work from salvation, from being saved. No condemnation or accusation, whether from Satan or ourselves, holds any merit when the case is closed. Finally, the fear Paul alleviates is whether we can be separated from God's love. This is a big one. Probably one we've all struggled with. Our last fear for tonight, answering, God abhors us. God abhors us. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? There are many options. The apostle presents some possibilities. He says, let's run the gamut. Continue on in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What's interesting about this list is it's actually a copy. It's a duplicate of the list at the end of 2 Corinthians, a biopic of Paul's own suffering from ministering. You see, the apostle is not writing from some ivory tower. He's showing us his scars. There's no sugarcoating it. The Christian life doesn't exempt us from suffering. There will be troubles, big and small. We will be persecuted. There might be hunger, poverty, danger, and even death. And I think today in America, we're starting to get a little taste of this. Christians are, as I'm sure you're aware, rapidly falling out of favor with mainstream media, pop culture, and the values of our nation. But it shouldn't shock us. It's just that we've grown too soft here in the U.S., unfamiliar with what most Christians experience all across the globe. I mean, other countries have underground 
churches. Just think about that. Underground churches. They have policies where it's illegal to preach the gospel. You serve jail time. Now, Paul shows this is to be expected, the norm for God's people, not only all over the world, but throughout all time. The apostle quotes Psalm 44 to highlight this. He quotes it in verse 36. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, that is a lovely analogy, right? The fate of a Christian is the same as a sheep being led out to the slaughterhouse, to have its throat slit from ear to ear. And this would cause any sensible person to pump the brakes, to slow down and question the love of God. How can God love me when that's the portrait of my end? A sacrifice, a dead animal. At least that would be the natural conclusion to draw. But Paul breaks his series of rhetorical questions to make it unequivocal and emphatic. Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's powerful. God loves us and it's like a light bulb goes on. It's like we we go through an immediate transformation, a costume change. We are more than conquerors. In the Greek, it's a compound word, huper nikomen. There's a prefix, huper, attached to conquer, nikomen, like Nike, victory, conquer. But why is the prefix there? The prefix makes this intensive, something that surpasses just defeating and conquering an opponent. So what's the shade of meaning? What's the nuance? How can you be more than a conqueror? Well, to illustrate, it's one thing if I beat you, my opponent, in a game. It's another thing if, in the process, you fall in love with me. Please don't, that's inappropriate. But here's the difference between mere conquering and more than conquering. One is merely victory over an enemy. The other is winning over an enemy. You see that? You do more than just conquer your adversary. You capture them. You convert them so that they are now for you. They are on your team serving your purposes to advance your cause, fighting for you. And Paul says this is true of all these things, all the things that he has just rattled off in verse 35. All these negative things can be redeployed, refashioned as positives. To summarize this concept in one word, Paul is talking about redemption. Redemption. This is Romans 8.28, re-upholstered in battle armor. All things work together for good. In all things, we are more than conquerors. That tribulation can no longer harm you. It presses you closer into the arms of your Savior, a deeper knowledge of his grace and strength. That distress encourages you to cling and rehearse the peace of God in the gospel. 
That persecution affirms that you are indeed are swimming upstream, that just as the world persecuted Christ, so they are persecuting you because they see Christ in you. That famine and nakedness are opportunities to, for God to show up and demonstrate his faithfulness, his sufficiency. Danger, sword, and death is no longer the end of the road, but the way home. And I know, I know this sounds insane, crazy, because we don't usually talk or think like this. But maybe that's because there's something wrong with us, not God's word. Such is the unconquerable power of God when we recognize that he loves us with an eternal, unwavering, eternally committed love in Christ. Now I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 10. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested. Brothers and sisters, I don't believe it is a stretch to say that the love of God makes us, in one sense, invincible, if you allow it to. I mean, Paul would testify to this. In fact, he does so right here, right now. As one who has experienced and endured the brunt of verses 35 and 36, it's almost as if he raises his voice by now using the first person pronoun. He's ditching the rhetorical questions and Paul announces, I'm going to make it loud and clear. I am convinced, I am convicted for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is testing the love of God in the laboratory. He uses this liter literary device called mirrorism to paint in broad strokes. Mirrorism is where you use two objects, to, a, a pair usually, to cover the full range. Like if I said, I'll move heaven and earth for you, it means I'll move heaven, earth, and everything in between. The first pair up, death and love. So death and love and everything in between. But on the polar ends, you have death boxed up, buried six feet under. This is final. The nail in the coffin, pun intended, of being separated from the love of God. But what did we just learn in verse 37? We're more than conquerors. Death hasn't just been defeated, it has been redeemed. Death has not only lost its sting, it has been remade from a tomb in the ground to an entrance home. On the other hand, we go through life, life experiencing all sorts of separation, the heartache of being separated from our jobs when we're laid off, separated from our earthly possessions by just wear and tear, by theft or losing, misplacing an item, separated from friends and family by all sorts of factors, drama, distance, illness, death. But in every step of life, there's one constant that can't be severed. 
the love of God. Now, if the visible world can't remove the love of God from us, how about the spiritual realm? We have angels, nor rulers. These two represent the invisible beings. Even these heavenly messengers or demonic forces, these mighty creatures can't hinder God's love. Next, Paul puts us on the clock, things present nor things to come to evaluate whether the love of God has, has an expiration date, if it will deteriorate over time. But neither the present age or the future can diminish the love of God for his own. Powers probably refers to miracles or any supernatural work. Well, guess what? Is God and his love not the greatest, most supernatural work of all? Height and depth deal with spatial parameters, location. That from the top of the atmospheric layer down to the molten core of our planet, there's no area that the love of God does not reach. Unless there be anything else we want to suggest as a possibility, the apostle concludes, nor anything else in all creation. What Paul once taught only through rhetorical questions, he's shouting in the affirmative. Nothing, friends, nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Does that grip you until you are firm, controlled and compelled by this magnificent love? Praxis, is this the bedrock of your faith? Is this where your confidence, your assurance lies? Not in affirmation from likes, comments, and followers on social media. Not in accumulating wealth for yourself and a large savings. Not even from the smiling approval of your parents or superiors at work. But to know God is for you in Christ. Not in what rumors are circulating around you, the slander of your peers or your own self-condemnation, how you berate yourself, but to know God has freed you from accusation. He's justified you in Christ. Not in a stress-free life, the comforts of abundant food and designer jeans, a cushy job, all the worldly definitions of what love is, but to know God loves you in Christ Jesus. Here's some merisms, young or old, married or singled, employed or jobless, rich or poor, healthy or sick. Nothing can separate a father from his children when he's already given up his begotten son. Experience how liberating this is when your confidence, your assurance is not tied to the opinion of peers or your own lacking performance. Friends, plant your confidence at Calvary and the promise that hangs from a cross, where assurance is as sure as the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. That in Christ, God is for you. In Christ, God has justified you. In Christ, God loves you. Let's pray. God, such splendid truths and truths we often take for granted because familiarity breeds content and our hearts are dulled. And so we ask that you would pierce through any callousness 
that you would help us to behold the majesty and kindness, patience, and faithfulness of our Lord and Savior. That his love echoes for eternity from the cross to when we will be glorified and with him. And therefore, we can endure. We can press on with hope because you are with us. You have given us your son. You have made us clean by the blood of Christ and you have demonstrated your love that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, we pray that this truth would be a foundation for us. Provide sure footing as we navigate through all of life's mountaintop experiences as well as low points in the valley. You are with us. God, I pray for a confidence in you that would stir us to fight our sin, to pursue Christ, to live boldly and be ambassadors of your son in our workplaces, in our relationships, even to our own hearts, that Christ is always better. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.